Well, thanks, David. A couple of months ago, I got to actually go on a field trip with the missions committee to see David in action. Yeah, he does a good job. So thank you for your ministry. Let's pray for him, and, and we'll continue in our worship this morning. Uh, Lord God, we thank you so much for the work that you do through us as your people in so many different and uh, creative ways. We pray for Servants Hearts Ministry, that you would continue to grant them success in the lives of the men and women that they train and teach and share the gospel with, um, that their lives would be enriched in all ways. We pray for our brother David. The, the excitement for his new ministry is obvious that you've led him there and you're using him. Continue to encourage him. Uh, let him see the value that, uh, that he can be to people's lives and see the results of that. We also want to pray for Chris and Annabelle and their mission and church planting in Canada. We pray that as they're um, at a transition point that you continue to be providing clear uh, guidance to them on their calling in their life. And we trust that you will do that and, uh, and wonderfully bless their work there as well. And we ask that you would guide us as we look at your scripture today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, during our Advent season, we've been looking at the beginning of the Gospel of John. And last week we finished the prologue, chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. Today we're skipping over to chapter 1, verse 29, and starting to look at the ministry of John the Baptist very briefly. And uh, the title of the sermon could be very simple because he opens the, the uh, passage by simply saying, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And, uh, you know, John the baptizer has been leading a spiritual revival at this point in the storyline for a number of weeks, maybe months now. You can read a little bit about it in the paragraphs previously. But it was all a ministry to prepare people because Jesus the Messiah would be revealed very shortly to them. And he taught things that echoed the prophets of old um, in the Old Testament, and he would be the one who would identify to everybody that Jesus was the Savior they've all been waiting for. And he called people to, in light of this, to repent of their sins and to put their faith in this one who would be coming and to act in faith by being baptized by him. And so John's ministry really fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah 40 and about the one who would come beforehand, this unique forerunner, the one and only voice calling in the wilderness, the one who would prepare the way. And many of us know the story of Jesus then, he would go and he would actually get baptized by John. And, uh, and it's always uh, a little bit seems backwards, doesn't it? That Jesus the Messiah would get baptized by John the Baptist. I mean, shouldn't it be the other way around? And it's even that was part of their conversation. So it's always a little bit confusing. But to put it simply, Jesus got baptized by John the Baptist to validate the ministry John was doing, first of all, that it was true. It was a fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah 40 to eventually then point to him and to validate his own, of course, person and his claim to be the Messiah that John has been pointing to. And so together, by that act, they would then inaugurate the purposes of God with the fullness of time in the history of redemption and fulfill all righteousness. So Matthew, in his gospel, he provides the fullest account of this scenario. Jesus and John even have a dialogue there. Matthew 3, it says, Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it's fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. 
And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And so this whole experience is presented by Matthew as the anointing, the commissioning of Jesus to his earthly ministry. You know, Mark and Luke in their gospels, they also record briefly Jesus' baptism and confirm this voice from heaven coming down, identifying Jesus as the promised divine Messiah, fulfilling Psalm 2, fulfilling Isaiah 42. And then Luke, in his presentation, draws our attention to all the supernatural events that took place during that day. Well, in John's gospel, where we are today, he doesn't record the baptism of Jesus, but rather assumes that everyone who's reading his gospel already knows the story. And so his report is from John the Baptist after the event, looking back upon it and then moving forward. And he presents Jesus' ministry as authentic, authenticating John's, which is proclaiming then Jesus as the Messiah. In other words, it's the culmination. It's the conclusion. It's, it's the final crowning glory of John's ministry and his revival. Here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So please turn your Bibles to chapter 1 of John, verse 29, or you can follow along as I printed it in your worship folder for you. So the next day, and this is presumably the next day after he baptized Jesus, so the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. So Jesus, we'll learn today in our passage from what we just read, that he's the Son of God, the Christ, who takes away our sin, first of all, and also gives us the Spirit. And so in our storyline, in verses 29 to 31, we see John pointing out to people, pointing out to us, that Jesus really is the Lamb of God, and then second of all, that John witnesses to the sign of the Spirit. So who is this Jesus, and what did he do? And John points out that, well, he's the Lamb of God, and he, t- Lamb of God. he tells us to behold this Lamb of God, first of all, in verse 29. That's the heading of his passage, and then he also then goes on to relate how he recognized Jesus originally to be the Lamb of God. So this declaration really could just be the title of the whole book of John, right here. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Because that is exactly what the Apostle John is going to do in his whole gospel, is that he is going to write down things for us to behold, to see that Jesus really is this one. And so this declaration, as I said, took place the next day. It's presumably the day after Jesus' baptism. And then we find out that Jesus is stated as the Lamb of God, the most excellent of lambs, being God himself, being from God, as we've already learned in the prologue, and he would be given as the sacrifice for the sin of the world. That's huge. And when we think about where this phrase you know, might have come from and what it means to call Jesus the Lamb of God, maybe you don't know what that means, that he's the Lamb of God. And there are many sources, of course, in the Old Testament we can think about. We think about the story of Abraham and Isaac and how a lamb was provided by God in place of Isaac for a sacrifice 
Again, all predicting what would take place with Jesus. So we read, for example, in Genesis 22, Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. And we see already predicted in that storyline that Jesus Christ would be offered up in our place. There's also much in the story about Passover, the original Passover, the redemption out of Egypt, and the predicting of so much more after that one event and the giving of the law and all those things. And so we remember that the blood of the lamb that was sacrificed, the Passover lamb, was one that was very important. In Exodus 12, 13, we see the role of that. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. And so Jesus' blood would protect us from the very wrath of God. The prophets, they said similar things as well, Jeremiah especially. Here's one from the book of Isaiah you know well, Isaiah 53. But he, Jesus, we're talking about, was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers. He opened not his mouth. And there are many other suggestions, of course, within the whole Old Covenant sacrificial system. Uh, even hints at some kind of a, a warrior lamb who would come, and then we read about that, of course, in Revelation, and I'll share some of those with you a little bit later. But it's really impossible to pinpoint the exact reference in John the baptizer's mind when he's saying this, and all these, all these things I've read and, and things in the Old Covenant sacrifices foreshadowed that one perfect, efficacious sacrifice by Jesus Christ. And so one passage you might want to write down is Hebrews 10, 11 and following. But Hebrews chapter 10, 11 and following says this, every priest, talking about under the old covenant system, stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet, for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And so we wonder, you know, even as John the baptizer says things like, well, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I mean, think about where we are in the storyline. I mean, how would he know much about Jesus' death at this point? And that it would be actually given for the sin of the world. Maybe God told him. Maybe he just spoke better than he knew at the time which was common for many of the prophets. And he says very clearly that this one would take away the sins of the world. Many translations are appropriate here. Bears off the sin of the world. Wipes away the sin of the world. Gets rid of the sin of the world. 
takes up, more literally, with him to his cross. And this is written in the original language in the Greek in the present tense with a future force to it. In other words, the whole idea is that he's going to be doing this soon. And implying that the power is lasting and that it would still have power and efficacy in the lives of people who would put their faith in Jesus Christ. The term sin here is in the singular to express the totality of all kinds of sin and to go beyond the people of Israel to the whole world, to the Gentiles, to you and me as well. Jesus would be the sacrificial substitutionary atonement, the complete atonement that we need to deal with sin, to get rid of it, to propitiate and satisfy the wrath of God that rested upon us. How wonderful and how amazing that John the baptizer could say this so early. Behold. Have you beholden? I mean, it's what you're supposed to do. You want to know what the application of this text is? It's right up front. You're supposed to behold something. You're supposed to go look at something. And you're supposed to go look at Jesus and recognize him as this lamb and the one who can take away and has taken away your sin. Now, John then relates how he knew who he was when he came. And we hear these words in verses 30 to 31 about him. This is of he of whom I say, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. Now, if you've been following along with John, that's like a repeat. It's the exact same words in verse 15. Exact same words. When John the Apostle was writing and giving the introduction, and then now we come and John says these, John the baptizer says these words out of his mouth. And ties us back to the beginning that John knows who he's talking about. This is the divine one. The one who always has been. Jesus Christ, the incarnate God, the incarnate Son, the one who was always with the Father. He would be the one who would become the Lamb of God and take away the sins of the world. And it's mysterious that this highest-ranking person that John has been talking about, well, he's finally arrived. And so John retells the story of when and how he himself came to recognize exactly who Jesus was. It was when this person came to him for baptism. And more details come out in verses 32 and 33. But John states that he didn't know who he was. That is, until that moment yesterday when he arrived at the Jordan River. John had a discussion with Jesus before he baptized him. We read a little bit of that in Matthew's Gospel. And it seems like, well, John the Baptist did know who this Jesus was. Of course, they knew each other. They were cousins. But he didn't know for sure that he was the Messiah, even though he might have had thoughts in that direction. Maybe at this moment, John came to know Jesus as the Messiah because Jesus just told him. Or God gave him a revelation. Or maybe just prior to the baptism, there were some confirmatory signs that God gave to him. But regardless, it's only after the Spirit descended and the voice comes out of heaven that John really knew deep down with confirmation that this Jesus was the Messiah of God. Then in verse 31, John makes it very clear about his own role to introduce the Messiah to the people and the people to their Messiah. And so we read, I myself didn't know him, but for this purpose I came, baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. Right? So there's a lot of discussion about John the Baptist's revival. It's a great revival he led. A lot of details in the Bible about it, actually. But here's the whole point. The whole point is to point people to Jesus Christ who would be there 
very shortly. And now we know why John was baptizing. So we skipped over part of the story. So if you look back, starting in verse 19 through uh, 28, uh, there's a lot of people that are not happy with John leading a revival, you know, because there's always those fake spiritual people that don't like real spirituality. Well, that's those people, okay? So they don't like that John is calling people to repentance, calling them to believe on someone who's coming very shortly. And so they have a lot of questions for him. And in verse 25, they ask him this question. So why are you baptizing if you're not the Christ or Elijah or the prophet? Well, now we know why he's baptizing. He says so right here. But for this purpose I came baptizing, that he, Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, might be revealed to Israel. He was baptizing in his spiritual revival for this one purpose, and that is to reveal Jesus to the world. So you can go back and read that on your own, that storyline. But John points out initially then that Jesus is the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world, and we are to behold him as such and worship him. And that's what we do every single Sunday as we gather as a church body, brothers and sisters in the Lord, is to worship Jesus Christ as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, even our sin. And we worship through him and because of him. And we can only come to God in his holiness there because of what Jesus has done for us and that he has propitiated God's wrath, that he has completely atoned for our sins. But you know there's more to come. You know, this imagery of being the Lamb of God, it goes way beyond the redemption piece that took place upon when Jesus was walking on this earth. But it talks about our experience that's going to be ours in the new heaven and the new earth when Jesus returns. That will be our experience for all of eternity. You see, his whole glory was his work that he did as the Lamb. And so that's why, as I'll read you a couple passages in a moment, this imagery of the Lamb goes beyond just his earthly ministry, and we read about it so much in the book of Revelation. And you may know that it's the same apostle, Apostle John, who wrote the book of Revelation. But Jesus' glory was his work as the Lamb. And his worship for all eternity is received because he did that work. He came from heaven to redeem us from our sins. And in his resurrection body, he still retains the marks from his crucifixion. Why? Because it's his glory for all of eternity to be the God-man redeemer of all of us who put our faith in him. And so the, you can observe some of these. I'll just go through them quickly. But the victorious Lamb of God is another way to look at him. The Lord Jesus Christ is mentioned repeatedly throughout the vision of the Apostle John in the book of Revelation this way. So it begins, the book really opens in a lot of ways in, in Revelation 5.9. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you've made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads upon myriads, thousands upon thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. He's to be worshiped for this purpose. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that's in them saying to him who sits on the throne, 
and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Revelation 7.17, we read about His care for us. For the Lamb is in the midst of the throne, will be their shepherd, and He will guide them to springs of living water, and God shall wipe away every tear from their eyes. Revelation 12.11 talks about the Lamb and the martyrs. And they have conquered Him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even to death. Revelation 17.14 They will make war on the Lamb in the final war, and the Lamb will conquer them, for He is the Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with Him are the called, the chosen faithful. Revelation 19.7, let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Talking about the wonderful celebration we'll have as the church of God with our Savior. And then in the, finally in the new heavens and the new earth, as you can see, it's all throughout the book of Revelation. It's punctuated with these statements. So Revelation 21.22, and I saw no temple in the city, For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. And then finally in Revelation 22, 3, No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And His servants will worship Him, for they will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is Jesus, the Son of God, the Christ, who takes away our sins. And he does more than that. He gives us the Spirit of God, which we read next, as John talks more about Jesus' work. And he talks about how he saw the sign of the Messiah, and then how he would testify to what Jesus would do. And so we read in verse 32, And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. John gives testimony of what he saw that day regarding the Spirit at the baptism of Jesus. He saw the Spirit descend from heaven and rest on him. The Spirit was in bodily form, the Gospel of Luke says, like a dove. Now, exactly what that looked like, we don't know, because we weren't there. But we also don't know the significance of why the Spirit would be in the form of a dove, even if it has any significance. Most fundamentally, it was simply the sign to John. This is the one. Jesus would be the Messiah. And that's what we have to come back to affirm over and over again as we read these passages about Jesus' baptism after we get exhausted trying to track down the dove imagery. So there are many suggestions out there, but perhaps the two most promising are these. They both fit John so far. And the first of all is the hovering of the dove relates to the Spirit's hovering at creation in Genesis 1 and 2. And so the divine Messiah, Jesus, is beginning a new creation at this point in the history of redemption. And remember, that's how John's gospel opened, in the beginning. I mean, it's mimicking the book of Genesis. That's because something new is happening in the history of redemption. A second promising way of thinking about the dove is that it was, it was assigned to Noah, if you remember that story, of a new age of blessing that would come after the flood. And so the divine Messiah now is going to bring in a new age of blessing in the history of redemption. But we should really focus on the Spirit Himself more than the symbol. I mean, that's the whole point when you go down to verse 33, because He, Jesus, is going to start baptizing in the Spirit. That's much more significant. 
So the Spirit anointing here surpasses all the anointings of the Old Covenant that would have been given for certain tasks. This is a new task at a new point in the history of redemption. Full renewal by the Holy Spirit. And only the, Holy, only the Messiah could do this. This anointing was for the benefit of John and through him to the world to hear about, to see, to explain who Jesus is. The Spirit would mark off Jesus as the Messiah and who he was in his character, in his teachings, in his miracles, in his persona that he presented. We read, for example, in the prophet Isaiah about who the Messiah would be and what he would be like, Isaiah 11:2. The Spirit of the Lord would rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and the passage goes on. Isaiah 61, 1, Jesus referred to himself by using this even, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. You see, the Messiah, Jesus, would be fully imbued with the spirit at all times in complete fellowship with his Father and with the Spirit. He would be the one then who would dispense the Spirit to the people of God. And that's where John is going in his gospel account. And now we get to his testimony about Jesus in verse 33 to 34. I myself didn't know him, remember, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he is on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain. This is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. So John gave testimony to the revelation, to the proceeding of the sign, and he was told by God to be looking for this, because once he saw it, then you would know this is the Messiah. That's the plan. And so this, this previous word to John the baptizer is God's way of speaking to him in advance and talking to him about the blessings that would be coming by the Holy Spirit. You remember John was sent by God the Father. If you go back to chapter 1, verse 6, there was a man who was sent from God whose name was John. And we thought, like, this is a strange thing to sort of insert in this really nice poetic language at the beginning of John, John's gospel, and then we get, to, we get John the baptizer inserted. That's because he's so important to the storyline of Jesus. Well, he was a prophet, and he was the first witness to God the Son incarnate, the Christ, in many ways, and would testify about him. John would identify Jesus as the one by the descent of the Spirit upon him, remaining upon him just as God told him to do and would be. And John was looking for him every day while he was out there preaching the gospel, preaching repentance, dealing with people that were truly submissive, dealing with people that were arrogant, dealing with all of these people and baptizing them and promise for the Messiah for weeks, maybe months, until Jesus shows up on the scene. And then the descent of the Spirit would confirm that this is the one, this is God's very Son. It was also a fulfillment of so many prophecies about the spirit anointing of the Messiah in the new covenant and the promises that he would be the one that would baptize in the Holy Spirit. So, for example, there's a lot more in John's gospel, but for example, Jesus would talk about and reference Ezekiel 36, which we'll actually look at in a way next week in John 3. Whereas in Ezekiel 36, 26, it says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I'll put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And then after the ascension of Jesus Christ to heavenly glory, he and the Father dispensed the spirit 
upon the church, and we read about that in the prophet Joel, chapter 2. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters will prophesy, your old men will dream dreams, your young men will see visions, even on male and female servants. In those days, I will pour out my spirit. So you're familiar with the teachings of Jesus and probably the historic event of Pentecost. It changed the history of redemption forever. And the people of God are totally different people than they were before because we actually have the Holy Spirit himself living within us. And so in Acts chapter 1, it's recorded for us, and while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise from the Father, which Jesus said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Jesus Christ would be the one who would baptize with the Holy Spirit. That means bringing and giving the Spirit, making the words of all these prophets about the new covenant a true reality. It marks out a true follower of Jesus, even as it marked out Jesus as the Son of God, because you see holiness, you see power, you see spiritual life in people who profess faith in Christ. They're different people. They've become different people, and they're different people than the people in the world. There was a no, there's an enormous amount of information in the New Testament about the Holy Spirit and His ministry. If you want to read about it, I would just suggest you read the chapter 8 of Romans. There's much there. But if you read the rest of the book of John, there's a lot in the Gospel of John about that. We'll hear even on Jesus' own lips in the Gospel of John. There's too much to summarize, but you can see the connection here that's really important connection to understand is that the beginning of the section, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and talks about his cross and our redemption there, and its connection then to giving us of the Holy Spirit at the end of the paragraph. It's another significant theme to be explored extensively in John's gospel, and that is, is that we don't just get piecemeal blessings from God. We get the whole package, all of it. We get redemption, we get eternal life, we get the Holy Spirit, we get it all when we put our faith in Jesus Christ. And the final words of John's testimony is that he is settled in his conviction at this point. He's convinced. This Jesus who came out for baptism, well, he's the Son of God, and now I'm presenting him to you. There's a voice from heaven that comes, as the other gospel writers tell us as a witness, but John, in his writing here, the apostle, just simply records what was actually said about what was said. And so John witnesses to the sign of the Spirit, it's the sign of the Messiah. Are you settled in your conviction of who Jesus is? Is he the Son of God, the Messiah, the Christ, the Lamb? Have you accepted his testimony and believed in him? Well, if so, then you've received the gift of the Holy Spirit. And you can see him better and even enjoy him more. The Holy Spirit gives you life. The Holy Spirit gives new birth. And from there, he's the greatest gift that God has ever given to us, is the Spirit of God. And that is because in him, we can fully grow up into the very image of Jesus Christ. We all need to grow up in our salvation. And the Holy Spirit has been given to us to make that a reality. He is an encouragement throughout our lives an empowerment for our ministries. He's the one who teaches us about our hope for all of eternity. And so we learn that Jesus not only is the Son of God or the Christ who takes away our sin, but he's the one who gives us 
his spirit as well upon putting our faith in him. You know, wouldn't it be great if we could get rid of all of our sin? Do you think people ever think much about this? Like the general public ever think about how like, oh, wouldn't it be great if I could just get rid of my sin? You have to go ask them to find out. But some probably never do. Some rarely do. But I think as you talk to people, you're going to find out that many people lament their own sin more than you realize and the situation that they're in and how they're trapped in things. Now, what if you could help them? I mean, once you get into a spiritual discussion with somebody, you can go to this matter pretty quickly when people need to hear from you most often is not only just who Jesus is, but that he took away the sin of the world. There's an offer on the table for them, if you will. And you can bring hope to so many people who are in despair over their own sin. I mean, John's ministry itself was to manifest the Christ to Israel and to the world. And we can ask similar questions to about ourselves. How, how might we manifest, make open Christ in our ministry? And the answer is by taking that conversation that we've just been studying and filling in those details for people. That they, making Christ plain to people. You know, Christ is confusing to a lot of people. And it's usually not their fault. It's because they hear weird stuff from people. So just make it plain and make it clear. And we got a lot in our storyline here that makes it very simple. So talk about, there's like four things. Talk about the identity of Jesus. So who is he? Who is he? He's the eternal son of God. That's what we've been learning about. This God himself. Talk about his incarnation. Oh yeah, it's, there's a lot to talk about there. But how God became man. And that he is truly fully God and truly fully man. And that he lived this perfectly righteous life. You talk about those things. Now that sounds very theological. So forget the, don't focus on that too much because then people get lost. But you can tell some stories from the gospel accounts themselves. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Because then you can slow down and you can actually show people who he is. You know, oftentimes, this sort of a sidebar note on this is that when I would take mission teams to parts of Asia, oftentimes the question is, well, how am I going to get prepared? What training do I need? You know, how should I share the gospel with people? And it seems like so many times people want like highly detailed lists of things that they can memorize. I'm not into that, okay? That's a complete waste of time in my opinion. And so the way I would train my teams would be like, pick a gospel. I don't care which one you pick. Pick Matthew, pick Mark, pick Luke, pick John. Just pick one. This is like three months before we go out. And I just want you to read that gospel every week. That's all you need to do. Just keep reading it, keep reading it, keep reading it. And guess what? By the time you're done, you're going to have all these stories in your head. And we are going to a part of the world where you know what people like to talk about more than anything? Stories. They love to hear stories. They love to tell stories. And those will then illustrate these things that we're talking about. Who is Jesus really? And what did he come to do? And then you can share with them these wonderful stories from the Gospels. Now back to the introduction here. Then you can start talking about the ministry of Jesus as the Lamb of God. How it is that the cross and the resurrection is actually what accomplishes our atonement. 
That's what's going to deal with our sin problem. That's what's going to deal with the struggles in our lives. That's what's going to give us hope and a, and a true righteousness. So you can talk about the identity of Jesus. You can talk about his incarnation. And then you can talk about his work as the lamb. And then you can talk about the fact that he gives the Holy Spirit. True spiritual life. So many people know they're dead. They know they're spiritually dead. That there's no life in them. And they might see it in you and wonder, how can I have that light in my soul? And so you can talk to them about how Jesus Christ gives the Holy Spirit true spiritual life, awakens who you are, opens your mind to who he is, and the power that comes into our life and all the other benefits. Might be a short conversation, might be a very long one, might be multiple conversations, even better. So you know, milk it for all it's worth. You don't talk to people for a long time. Get back together with them. This is how we make disciples, which is the mission of the church. So all of this is right here at the very beginning in the first chapter of John's account. So you can read verses 1 through 34. And all of it is right there. You know, it's really, really easy to witness to Jesus Christ because all you have to do is follow the examples in the Bible. And you got two already. You got John the baptizer, do what he did. And how he talked to people. And you got the apostle himself as he's writing this down for you and how he tells the story. You see, the basics of the gospel that we just really talked about, who is Jesus, what did he come to do, the basics of the gospel are spiritually renewing and refreshing for our own lives. But of course, we're not just studying the gospel of John this Christmas season for our own lives. We're studying it for people that God puts in our path. And what you're going to find, I promise you, is that as you share this with other people who need to know it, you're going to be doubly blessed. And it will be even more refreshing to your soul, this gospel that you believe, once you start sharing it more and more with people. It's my hope and prayer that we'll boldly declare with John the baptizer, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, even ours. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we praise you this morning that you are the eternal Son of God, that you are God himself, that you are the Christ. We praise you that you took upon yourself humanity, body and soul, became one of us, lived among us, yet without sin, lived truly perfect life. We praise you, Lord Jesus, that you are the Lamb, that you willingly offered up yourself as the, the one and only sacrifice that really could do the thing that we're looking for those sacrifices to do, and that is get rid of sin. We praise you that you atoned for our sin and that you have given us of your own righteousness. And we praise you that it even goes beyond this, that you would grant to us as your people your spirit. The Holy Spirit would live within us as your people to make what we believed even more of a real reality that we can experience and see for ourselves in our own lives and in the lives of other believers who are our brothers and sisters in Christ. We pray that you continue to perfect us, make us very much to be who we're supposed to be, may remade in the very image of Christ. And we pray all these things during this season in your name and for your glory, Jesus. Amen.